We're going to continue our study in Ephesians 4. So I invite you to turn there with me. I'm going to read uh, Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16 as we kind of keep making our way through this. It's not as uh, profound as it would if we were preaching through the book, but really helpful principles, reminders. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verse 11 to verse 16. It says this, and he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This passage that we just read gives us Christ's design for his church. Christ's design is that his church be maturing. It's never done until he comes More than that, Christ's design is that every member would be working and contributing to that end. Just like my wife and I as mom and dad are playing a part in how our children grow physically and socially and intellectually, we're all supposed to be playing a part in how we each grow spiritually. Growing as a Christian is not merely a function of age or even time. You can be an older person and be a Christian. You can be someone who's been a Christian for a long time and still be immature in the faith. Most tragically would be those who claim or believe they're Christians but are actually deceived about it. When someone is perpetually immature or weak in faith or even deceived about their own faith, a lot of that is gonna flow from having a wrong or weak understanding of the church. If your picture of the church is skewed, if it's inadequate, then your faith is going to be hindered because the instrument of God's work in the world at this time is his church. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he speaks much about the church, and and, and it goes both ways. One way is the global church, but Paul also indicates that what is true of the global church is true of the local church. So we want to apply these things, not just generically, but here to us, here, Pico Rivera, First Bellingham Baptist, this is who we are. The very first time the word church is used in our New Testament is Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In that statement, we get two important realities of the church. We see first the certainty of the church's victory and endurance. Despite all the um, opposition, despite Satan's attempts, despite the rejection from the world, despite all the Christians who through history have lost their lives because of their faith, the church of Christ will continue until he comes for her. 
The second reality we see in Jesus' statement is his promise and power to build the church. That's vital for us to understand. You and I, either individually or even collectively, we don't directly build the church. Jesus does that. But that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility. We have a part to play in the work of God. For example, as a dad, I cannot instantly make my child grow taller. But I can make decisions about her life that promote healthy growth. In the same way, we are all called to work to to see one another grow spiritually. The growth is from God, but we have a role to play. The moment you or I or any group begins to behave or believe that we're directly responsible to build the church, we stray into all kinds of unhealthy or dangerous deviations. Usually they're gonna be approaches that are man-focused rather than centered on the word of God and on the glory of God. Usually those are groups that will be focused on external indicators rather than faithfulness to the word of God. Groups can start doing things their own way, thinking this is going to help. In some cases, that can lead to unhealthy churches. In the worst cases, it leads to a false church that is both deceived and deceiving others. The church is Christ's, and he will be responsible to build it. We're called to be faithful as he does that. And as we think about how Christ builds his church, I want you to, you can mark your place here in Ephesians. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The gospels have plenty of examples of Jesus preaching to multitudes, but we also get examples of his personal interactions. We have a conversation here between Jesus and a man we refer to as the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16. Just pay attention to how Jesus, the the perfectly faithful church builder, interacts with this man. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19. It says, Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He wanted certainty, security, assurance. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. 
But with God, all things are possible. I think there are plenty of churches today who would take exception to what Jesus did. Jesus, you drove this man away. He was young. Think about the energy he would have brought to your movement. He was rich. Think about the kind of donor he would have been to your movement. What are you doing, Jesus? Couldn't you have given him something simple to start out and then sort of slowly start climbing the ramping up toward the harder stuff? What is Jesus doing? Jesus wanted this man to see that all his personal perceived righteousness was not enough. Jesus wanted this young man to recognize his absolute inability to live up to God's perfect standard. He wanted him to know that what mattered was obedience to Christ, obedience to the Son of God. He implies that when he says, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. He says, you follow me. Calling someone to Christ has to include exposing them to their sin. It needs to be made clear in the call of the gospel that nobody comes to God on his or her own terms. You, you come on God's terms because you're the sinner doomed to hell. And yet you have the gracious offer of salvation in Christ for everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in the Savior who died and rose again. You can't call someone to Christ without addressing sin. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well. He looked at her and said, go, go call your husband, knowing exactly what her life had been like. She'd been with five different husbands. She was with the sixth man who was not her husband. In this case, you have a young man, and it didn't matter that he thought he had kept most of the commandments. He was still holding on to something, and that was his riches. His possessions had become part of his identity. This is who I am, and I'm unwilling to let that go. Coming to Jesus for eternal life means you surrender who you are. You surrender your identity. The old you dies and the new you is in Christ. Your identity is in him. And Jesus may not command us individually. He may not command you to sell everything you have. But coming to him means you're willing to do it if he asks for it. That's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. He's master. All by himself, no sinner is going to surrender his life to Jesus Christ. The pride of sin says, no, 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 I know how to run my life. Just tell me what to do and I'll fix it. Jesus said, no, no one comes. That's impossible. But it becomes a reality when God graciously, sovereignly calls a sinner to himself and grants him new life. It all depends on God. Go ahead and turn back with me to Ephesians 4. I share that story with you because as an introduction, I want you to see that the principles that we understand and need to know about genuine salvation are the same principles concerning genuine sanctification or Christian growth. The rules don't change. We are to be faithful to the truth. We are to be surrendered to Christ And in all of that, we are to continually depend on him for anything worthwhile to take place. Even though we're talking about the church, the focal point of Ephesians and the focal point of this section is not the church, it's Jesus Christ. 
The church only exists in relationship to Christ. Our our duties, our responsibilities flow out of understanding who Christ is. And so with that in mind, let me give you some important reminders, some key truths concerning Christ and his church. I've got five of them today. The first truth we saw in verses one through, I'm sorry, I'm starting in verse seven, and that is that Jesus gifts his church. Jesus gifts, let me bring you back up actually, I'll add one more. The first truth is Jesus unites his church. That's verses one through six. We covered that uh, last week or a couple weeks ago. Jesus unites his church, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism. We're all in Christ. The second truth, starting in verse seven, Jesus gifts his church. He gifts his church. This is what we talked about last week. We looked at verses 11 and 12. He gives gifts to his people, and more specifically to local churches, he gives pastors or elders, teachers, so that the church would grow. Jesus has gifted you as part of his church, and he's gifted others to serve in and with the church. So Jesus unites his church. Jesus gifts his church. Number three, Jesus owns his church. The church is not an accident. It didn't just happen to come about and Jesus said, you know, that's a good thing. I kinda, I'm gonna join with that movement. That's not what happened. The church is not like a stray dog that you find. You go, hey, there's no collar. There's no name tag. I'm just gonna make it my own. That's not how it works. Jesus founded the church. He created the church. He, by his word, birthed the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. That's what Ephesians 2.20 says. There's a beautiful hymn that points to this truth. It's called The Church's One Foundation. It's written in 1866, rich with theology. The opening verse says this, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. We can't allow ourselves to forget that the church belongs to Christ. It's not my church, it's not the pastor's church, it's not the elder's church ultimately. It belongs to Christ. And then Paul points us to that at the end of verse 12. We're all working for the body of Christ, it's his. We belong to him. Let's move on to the next truth. Jesus unites his church, he gifts his church, he owns his church. Now number four, Jesus directs his church. He directs his church. At the end of verse 12, it says, the the pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. When Paul says we want to build up the body of Christ, he's not talking about numbers. He's not talking about getting more people to join. He's talking about personal growth. He's talking about our spiritual edification. There are pastors that speak about people coming and, and fruit in the world. But this here, it's focused on our spiritual edification. Even if no one knew was ever added to our church, we would still be obedient to the Great Commission as we continue to learn to obey all that Christ has commanded us. We, we desire people to come. We hope they come. We pray they would come. We work so they would come. But the measure of faithfulness and the measure of success is not the numbers. Just ask the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah. What pastors, what shepherds want for their flock is that the sheep in our care would grow. 
We want them to mature spiritually. And what does Christian maturity look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is the trajectory of the church. We as pastors or elders are not after simply having more people show up on Sunday or more people be faithful in their offering or in service to one another. We're looking for people to be more like Christ. That's the direction. That's what growth looks like. We had a pastor's meeting some time ago and my kids were here during the week and my son opened the door and Pastor Michael goes, oh, wow, he looks like you. And no one had ever really said that. It was not as common. But that's the reality. You see little kids, especially boys, oh, you look like your dad. What are we gonna look like as we grow spiritually? We're gonna look like our savior, Jesus Christ, who perfectly represents God, our heavenly father. Look at verse 13. The first word there in verse 13 is until. So the equipping, so the saints would work, so the saints would build up the body, all that is happening until, and sometimes until marks time, but it also points to the goal or or the direction. If, If pastors are teaching and they're equipping for ministry and for edification, when is that done? What's the goal? Keep reading. We, we, we keep feeding the flock until we all attain to or, or arrive at three things. Number one, we're aiming at the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Number two, we are aiming for mature manhood. We want to attain to mature manhood. And number three, we want to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Three different ways to talk about spiritual growth. Spiritual edification. On the one hand, there's a doctrinal component. That's the unity of the faith. The faith, uh, there's a subjective sense, faith to I have faith. But the objective sense of faith is the content of our faith. This is what we believe, the faith. One day, we are all going to agree completely. And that agreement will not simply be an intellectual thing. Behind any doctrinal discussion, the real question that we're trying to answer is not what does your church think or what does my church think? The real question is what does Jesus say? Doctrine is an extension of Jesus Christ. And that's what you see in verse 13. We're attaining to the unity of the faith, which is the knowledge or the full knowledge of the Son of God. Doctrine is not intended to be cold and detached. It's how we know and represent Christ. Spiritual life and spiritual growth is not just showing up more at church or being a nicer person. It means you know Christ more and you're more like him. So if someone wants to come to Jesus, but he doesn't want to surrender to him or be made like him, That's not going to bring eternal life. That will end tragically in eternal judgment. That is not the biblical Jesus. We don't have a Jesus who says, I'll save you, and then one day you get to decide if if you listen to me. That's not biblical Christianity. You don't, because we say this so often, you don't actually make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. In coming in repentance, you're recognizing it. You're submitting to it. That's repentance, and that was the gospel of Jesus, that was the gospel of the apostles. Surrender your life, repent, and believe on the Lord who died and rose again. Repentance is you turn from whatever it is you're chasing, whatever it is you're you're following after, you surrender to Christ, you call out for him like the sinner who, who beat his chest, you call out for him for mercy, and you believe that his death and resurrection alone is the basis of your salvation. 
And the moment that happens, life is transformed. You're a new creation. That new you is Christ. Paul calls it Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. We look, I think I said this already. You look at your kids and you go, what are they going to look like when they're 15, 16, 18? We don't really know, but you kind of see it moving in that direction. What are we going to look like when we're mature? We're going to look like Christ. That's the direction. I mentioned last week the end of Colossians 1. Paul says, I exert with the energy of Christ so that you would be more like him. In Galatians 4, he says, I'm in labor pains. He's mixing some analogies. But he says, I'm in labor pains until Christ is formed in you. He wasn't talking about salvation. They're already saved. They're Christians. He's talking about sanctification. I want you to be more like Christ. And it's not just the job of the apostles or the elders or the pastors to see others be more like Christ. We're all called to work to move in that direction. Jesus sets and Jesus is the direction of the church. That's the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's, the, that's mature manhood. I was probably not that old. I was probably 15 or 16. I didn't know it at the time, but I was done growing. That was it. I'm not growing anymore. We know that. Usually you're 20, by 20 years old, you're as tall as you're going to be. And we just accept it. But you can't live like that spiritually. Well, I made it. I'm done. We're moving to Christ. And until the day you can say, I, now I'm like Christ. I, I know him. I, I, I perfectly walk with him. Until that day comes, you're not done growing. Jesus directs his church. He directs them to himself. Let me move to a fifth reality. It is this. Jesus protects his church. Jesus directs his church and he protects his church. Look at verse 14 with me. As we grow to be like Christ, we're not just taking a step toward our eternal destiny, that is true, but there's also something happening here on earth. As we grow to be like Christ, that's how Jesus protects us. If we're growing to think like Christ and to act like Christ, what happens? Verse 14, this process of mutual edification is taking place, verse 14 now says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's the protection. We don't want that for you. are going to be like Christ so that this won't happen. The greatest hindrance to your spiritual growth is not somebody else. It's not something outside you. It's your own heart. It's my own heart. It's sin. It's my sinful flesh. You feel things. You think things. You want things. You believe things. And you do things that inhibit your spiritual growth. That's the reality of this life. Coming to salvation means we're saved from the penalty of sin. We have been given power over sin, but we're not completely free from the presence of sin. That's part of Paul's anguish in Romans 7. He cries out, who's going to free me from the body of death? All of us, instead of being continually led by God's truth, are tempted to follow our own desires. We have, if you will, spiritual ADD. I, I, just, I, I need to stay focused, but I can't. And that's, and that's one of the characteristics of children. They, 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 don't, they don't think properly. The ball goes bouncing in the street, and so they take off to go get it. 
And you go, well, stop, what are you doing? Don't you know, uh, some, uh, you tell them, right, some guy comes up with a van and he's offering you candy and you don't take it, walk, run away. Kids don't have discernment. Children do not have sound judgment. Parents need to teach that to them. But we act the same way every time we sin. We, we, we're doing the same kinds of things every time we accept some teaching that's not in line with scripture because it's attractive to us. But the more we grow, the more we grow into Christ, the less we start acting like children. He changes the analogy. First he says you're not a child. Now he goes the analogy of a picture of a rowboat in a storm. He's being pushed and pulled by the wind and the waves. To know Christ is to be anchored in the truth. Paul was not out there preaching, simply trying to get Christian converts. He wanted Christians who were equipped to respond to the deception. He calls it in verse 14, human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Why do I still get emails and phone calls promising me money if I'll just give them my name, my social security number, my mother's maiden name, my credit card numbers, and everything else? Why do we get those emails and those phone calls? because there are people in this world who fall for it. If you've been prepared properly, you're much less likely to be fooled, fooled, though it can happen. It's the same idea spiritually. There is no church out there saying, hey, join us and you'll end up in hell. Who's gonna say that? No one's gonna fall for that. They're out there portraying themselves as, as, as genuine churches. There's no unhealthy church out there going, say, come on in, we have Christianity light for you. They're gonna talk about we're serving Christ, we're living life to the fullest. How are we supposed to know which churches are the healthiest ones and which churches are more extreme, dead or false? You know that by measuring them against the standard of Scripture. This morning, we were going down Whittier Boulevard with William Rubio, and there's a little card outside, and it's got little pamphlets all stacked up, and it says, free Bible studies, and there's two people sitting there, dressed very well. More than likely, they're Jehovah's Witness. Well, what's wrong with them? They're giving people Bible studies, and you go to those Bible studies, and you don't study the Bible, you study the little pamphlets that come out from the watchtower. They separate themselves from the scriptures this is what, what we're looking for in a true church is a true, it's a church that opens and looks at the Bible. And that's what you should see here. We open our Bibles, we read the Bible, we, we study the Bible. My job here is not to simply hold it while I talk. My job is to teach it. So you look down, you see what I see. I'm helping give you the, the big picture of, of Christianity, the big picture of God's story, which is redemption in Christ for his glory. And then we're looking at specifically at passages and texts and saying, what, what is Paul trying to say? God is working in the apostle. We're focused on the doctrine of the apostles. We, we take the, why do we do that? Because we take this as God's word, like Paul said to the Thessalonians. It's not man's word, it's God's word. That's a, that's a primary mark of a healthy church. We're not looking for messages simply based on the Bible. We want the message of the Bible. That's part of the reason, in general, we go through books. I want to, we want to see the flow and understand. 
And some people have said they hear the difference because after a while you, you listen to that and then you go hear a different kind of preaching and, 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 and it's like, well, it's true, but I'm struggling. To, where, where is he getting this? And over time, what ends up happening is people are built maybe into the truth, but they're built into the truth because the man said it, not because that's what the word says. It's really common. You turn on the TV or the radio or podcast, and it's, it, it's common. There are, just because you're famous doesn't mean you're bad. doesn't mean you're good. But what you're listening for, am I learning the scriptures, or is someone just cherry-picking verses? Is this man or is this woman who's teaching helping me understand the story of God? Am I seeing for myself? Am I learning from the scriptures? In Acts chapter 20, Paul calls the elders from Ephesus. He's at a city called Miletus. He's gonna, it's the last time he's ever gonna see them. So he says, call the elders to me, and they come. Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 30, he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care or to pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. So Paul is is warning the elders at the church of Ephesus to protect themselves, to protect the church. But that's the church, Paul, Paul, who saw the resurrected Christ, who'd been personally chosen as an apostle of Christ, he founded this church. Could he not guarantee its faithfulness in the next generation? Apparently not. Paul knew the church could be led astray by the deception of Satan, so he warns the leaders, stay on guard. Protect the truth. Why is it that people or churches begin to drift from the truth? Why is it they begin to adjust the message? It happens because you lose your focus on the word of God. A lot of times it's a very gradual shift. It can happen sometimes because you want to appeal to culture. It can happen sometimes because you want to accommodate your own sin. Groups can begin making allowances and behind that is, no, no, this is better. This, this helps us build the church. And what they've lost is their grip on the authority of Scripture. Listen to Paul's words to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 and 19. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So again, watch your doctrine. That's the faith. Watch your life. That's the good conscience. He says that later in chapter four. Guard yourself. Watch over yourself. Watch over your teaching. Jude, uh, opening, I think it's verse three of Jude, says the same thing. We're, we're called to contend for the faith. Back to 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul says, by rejecting this, Timothy, some have made shipwreck of their faith. They've allowed the wind and the waves of deception to destroy their faith. When I'm confronted, personally, when I'm confronted with a doctrinal issue, my primary question is not, well, how important is this issue? Is it salvific or not? I I don't think that's the best place to start. The, the, The degree to which I will speak on an issue is related to a different question. I think a better question is, how how clear is this in scripture? 
How clear is this teaching? Even if it's a a small detail, if it's clear in scripture, I'm gonna take a stand on it because once you start compromising on small things, you begin to open the door for anything else. It just becomes a matter of time. So for example, if someone says, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really, yeah, I don't really believe that Jesus fed the multitude with food and bread. No, no one can do that. And there are people who, who years ago, there, were, there was a, uh, I think they were called the Jesus Seminar, and they began to cast votes on what they believed was real or not real from the gospel. And they said, no, we're Christians, we believe the gospel, but there are some doubts we have about the scriptures. There was this one view that Jesus, he, when he actually gave food to the multitude, he, he had nothing, and, they, and the little boy came forward and said, hey, I have my, my fish and my bread, and the people were so moved by what this little boy did in offering his lunch that they began to contribute, and that's what provided food for everybody there. You see, they all did just one big picnic, one big potluck. It sounds nice, would sound nice in a chicken soup for the soul, but that's not what the Bible says. So what happens if someone comes and says, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I, I don't believe that whole, I, I don't really believe that God, you know, flooded the whole world and then saved one man named Noah. I, I, I don't buy that. Does that mean they're not really a Christian? The answer is, I, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not. It doesn't necessarily mean they are. But it does mean that there is a danger there in how they view the scriptures because if Noah wasn't real, if the flood wasn't real, if we're not to take that for what it says, what about his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who were, one was blessed, one was cursed? What about his grandsons? What about Noah's descendants, Terah? What about Terah's son, Abraham, the father of Israel? Where do you end? Where do you start? What about, you go to the New Testament, what about the connections Jesus made between the salvation of God in the time of Noah and his judgment and the salvation and, and, and judgment that's to come? What about Peter's connection to Noah? What about the, the author of Hebrews' connection to Noah? Once you start minimizing or erasing or ignoring or finding ways around clear teachings of Scripture, you're on a dangerous path. It's the path to spiritual immaturity. Worse, it may be the path to spiritual death. The Scriptures are a unit. Jesus said the Scriptures cannot be broken. We don't get to pick and choose. There's actually, you can look this up, something called the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was famous for just tearing out pages he didn't agree with. And so he had a much smaller, they called it the Jefferson Bible. You can't live, you're not gonna grow spiritually. You can't, you can't survive like that. Let me give you a final principle and I'm just gonna touch on it and we'll continue it next week. Final reminder for today, Christ protects his church. He does so by his word. Lastly, Jesus Christ empowers his church. He empowers his church. He's the one who unites his church. He's the one who gives gifts to his church. He's the one who owns his church. He's the one who directs and and sets a direction for his church. He's the one who protects his church. And he is the one who enables all of us to be a functioning part of the church. Everything we do that's worthwhile, that's for the glory of God, is only going to happen by his power. Verse 16 says, it's from him that the whole body grows. And we'll talk more about that next week. We depend on his strength. For now, let me just close with an, an encouragement. Think about that list of who Christ is in relation to his church. As we meditate on that, as we see who Christ is in relationship to his church, as we remember also that we're a part of that church, 
It's supposed to compel us to participate in what Christ is doing. We don't just sit back and say, oh, Jesus is doing that, wonderful. We sit back and say, I am intended to be a part of that. If you are a member of our church, God has designed for you to be an active part of our church's spiritual health. You're not called to simply contribute to the functions of the church. You're called to contribute to the health of the church. The functions are good things. Serving coffee, opening doors, serving with security, painting walls. Cleaning rooms, watching kids, those are, those are functions, but, but beyond that, we're called to contribute to the health of the church. Your role in the church as part of the body of Christ is to work, that's the word he uses, the work of ministry, you work so the rest of us will think and act more like Christ. That's Christian encouragement. That's Christian ministry. That's what we as elders are wanting to model for you, And that's what we want to help you do better. That's the direction of the Christian life, and you're supposed to be a part of that. That's what behind uh, the encouragement of uh, Hebrews chapter 3, where it says, exhort one another every day. Brothers, it's not the job just of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, same thing. He says, brothers, if someone's idle, they're, they're rebelling, admonish them. If someone's suffering, help them. That's not the job only of the elders. It's everybody's job. We're all called to be a part of it. As brothers and sisters in the faith, we're not trying to connect simply at an earthly level. That's normal. You start talking to people about your new gas bill, by the way, it's gonna happen if you haven't seen it, and we immediately, I feel you, brother, and and we're united in what's happening. But that's not Christian unity. That's not wrong, but that's earthly. We're gonna have things in common. We're trying to connect and help one another be more like Jesus with regard to doctrine and with regard to life, holiness. We're helping anchor one another in the truth rather than be swayed by the deception of Satan. So when a brother or sister comes to you and says, I had a bad day, or they vent with you about how difficult the day was, we are called by God's grace to sympathize with them, to help them, and we're called to encourage them in the Lord. We'll talk about that next week, speaking the truth in love. If a man comes to you and he's angry or bitter about something with his spouse, he needs to be exhorted that he's called by Christ to love her, to sacrifice for her spiritual good. When a woman comes to you and she's upset about her husband, she needs to remember God is sovereign, God is still in control, and she's still called to respect him. And the, and the list goes on. God has us in each other's lives so that, we can't, so that we wouldn't allow one another to be swept away by our own interpretations. We need to know the truth and we need to exhort one another in it. That's the design. We need one another. And we need to be taking an active role in helping direct and protect the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your beautiful picture of the church. There's a diversity, there's a, there's a glory, the multifaceted glory that we get to see. We thank you for the men and women that have helped shape us into who we are today and that are still being used by you to shape us to be more like Christ. We pray you would open our own eyes to the ways that we can guide others to stand strong in the faith, to contend for the faith and to continue to cling to Christ who is the head. 
open our eyes, Lord, to the ways that we can step into one another's lives. Use these, these new FLGs, this new session of FLGs that are starting. Use our time during the week, Lord, so that we would help one another grow. We need each other. Forgive our arrogance. Forgive our independence. And we pray we would grow closer to you as we grow closer to one another as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.